Hey everybody, it's Dan. Welcome or welcome back to the Bridge Church Podcast. Please, at the end of this episode, take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and head over to bridgechurchutah.com and have access to all of the church information and it's the easiest way to share content with a friend and keep up with everything going on around here at Bridge Church. Most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. So, Father, in the name above every name, Father, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, the first, the last, that is Jesus, our Redeemer, our hope, our life. Father, we pray in Jesus' name this morning for this uh, service today, Father, as we learn about the garden, about the garden of Gethsemane, Father, I pray that you would deposit into each person in this room and on the stream and on the podcast today, Father, the importance of the cross and the importance of what you did starting in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, that we would learn and understand that that is the power of God. The power of God for us that are here on the earth to operate, to move, to pray in Jesus' name. And that, Father, you lean in when we pray. So, Father, everybody under the sound of my voice today, something that they haven't heard before. And, Father, for those who are traveling, for our church family who is out in California and Tulsa and Denver and moving around the country, Father, we pray safe travels back for them that their vehicles, whether it's an airplane or a car, are operating in a manner and fashion that they are supposed to. And that, Father, they are safe and angels encamped around them. And we thank you, Father, for what you're going to do in this service today, that nobody leaves the same. In Jesus' name, if you can agree with that, say amen. amen. You may be seated. Amen. Well, this is going to be great. I love this series. It's, uh, it's probably my favorite because the cross is so important, yet nobody really understands what happened. And that's what we're going to try to do through the next four weeks leading up to Resurrection Sunday. Because the cross is one of the most recognizable symbols, we could say, in all the earth. Right? We see them, people wear them. We see them, uh, you know, in churches. We see all kinds of different outside of churches on steeples. It's one of the most recognizable things. Most everybody you come to is going to understand what that is. But most people understand that Jesus died on that cross to save us from sin. But they don't really understand what happened during those days leading up to his death. What happened after he died and then the resurrection. I mean, we see the movies, right? I'm going to reference the passion of the Christ uh, many times today, and I want you, I would encourage you, if you haven't seen that movie, um, just, I think it's on all of the networks, go watch it, and, and you'll understand what happened, and, and that movie created a real serious issue for a lot of people because of how gory it was and how bloody it was and how bad he was treated and the, the abuse that he took. But in my opinion, my opinion, um, I believe that wasn't even close to what really happened. I think it was far worse than that. And we're going to find out today that the, it started in the garden. The Garden of Gethsemane is one of the most excruciating 
places in Jesus' whole ministry, so much so that an angel had to come to strengthen him. This is Jesus. This is the picture of health. The Son of God had to be strengthened by an angel in the garden. Now, I believe that that angel didn't strengthen him in the garden. He would have died there. And we're going to see that today, okay? It was, it was terrible for him. Um, during his trial, we'll see next week, we'll talk about the trial of Jesus when he was arrested and taken. The, the high priest and the Pharisees broke 38 of their own rules in trying him. They, they, had, a, um, they had their finger on him, and they were going to blame him for all this stuff. We'll look at that. And then the third day, he, he, he was killed, and he's put in a tomb, and then the third day, he rose. Hallelujah, that's Resurrection Sunday. That's what we're going to celebrate in about a month, right? So if there's anybody in the world who understands this, understands the cross past Jesus, it would have to be the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul says in many places uh, that, uh, you know, he, he just gets it at a whole other level. Now, Paul was, was around, but he wasn't part of Jesus' group. But he, he, at that point, he was killing part of Jesus' group. He was on the other side of the fence, right? But Paul gets it after the road to Damascus trip. In, in 1 Corinthians 2.2, listen, listen to how much Paul gets it, right? In 1 Corinthians 2.2, he says, For I determined, say determined, determine. not to know anything. I don't want to know nothing. I don't care about anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's all I care about, the crucifixion of Jesus. It was interesting that the, the priority that he puts on the cross, right? The cross that we just kind of, nah, that's Easter. But Paul puts a high priority in it, and he wasn't very fancy, right? He, he talks about this in the, in the verse we'll see in a minute, how he's not well schooled, or he was well schooled. He came up under Gamaliel, the, the uh, instructor at the Pharisee school of schools. I mean, he was somebody. He was well-schooled. He knew about it. But he's like, I don't care about anything but Jesus and him crucified. One chapter back in chapter 1, verse 17, he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize. That's not my job to baptize, he says. Uh, you know, baptism, man. People fight wars over baptism. Do you dunk? Do you sprinkle? Do you douse infant, adult? choose in the name of Jesus and the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. How do you do it? Right? People fight wars over this stuff. And Paul says, that's not my job. He says his job is to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words. That's comforting to every pastor on the planet. Hallelujah. Lest the cross of Christ should be made no effect. I think in churches today and, and back, I think they've sanitized what happened at the cross. I think it kind of gets passed over. Nobody talks about the blood of Jesus being offered because realistically it's kind of gross and it's really kind of deep and it's really offensive to know what happened in those days that we're going to look through this, right? Um, sometimes we want to see, see the painting of Jesus, right? I call it, when we watch the Jesus movies, I call it the, the movie star Jesus with the wavy hair and the pretty eyes and the tan face, it's like, no, it was that. Realistically, it was that. It wasn't that, right? And, and everybody's seen the pictures with the valley behind him, and he's all, you know, giving it the pose. That was not what the Jesus is that we worship. 
right? It's that Jesus who was crucified, right? And um, verse 18, he says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. The world doesn't get it. They'll never understand it. They've probably seen the movies, but they don't, they don't understand what's going on. But to us, listen to this. This will change your whole view of Jesus. He says, but to us, that's us who are saved, who are being saved, it is the, read it with me. He says, saved, it is the power of God. I want you to notice that the cross that Jesus was crucified on is the power of God. And a lot of us understand how this works because it took a blood sacrifice. It took Jesus' blood to redeem us, right? But we don't want to be, um, we don't want to accept the fact most of us, me for a long time, even after I got saved, I wouldn't accept the fact that there was a sacrifice made for me. It's like, I can't, I can't see that. I don't understand that. And, and being a man, especially, Dom kind of touched on it. It's like, oh, I'm good. I don't, I don't need the sacrifice. I don't need anybody to help me. Every atheist, every cult, anybody who comes against um, Christianity goes after the resurrection. That's usually where they're starting. It was a book by that guy, and then they made a movie about it, Case for Christ, Lee Strobel. His whole, he was an atheist before that until he studied it out, and he found out he was, we went after the resurrection. He said, there's no way that could happen. And he researched, it's a good movie, go, go watch it. But in the end, he found out there was no possible way that Jesus couldn't have been resurrected. All of the historical facts, all of everything in the Bible and everything that happened during that time, there's even Roman historical documents stating there was a stir in, in Jerusalem, there was rioting, fires, mudslides, all that stuff, or mudslides, I don't know about that, but there was this thing happening in Jerusalem over uh, a guy from Galilee, right? They called him the Nazarene that actually took place. They always go after the resurrection. The resurrection. The cross is the power of God. In Galatians chapter 6, Paul's continuing, and he says, but God forbid that I should boast, and Paul was somebody, he was a pretty important guy, right? God forbid that I should boast except, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The only thing I'm going to brag about is what Jesus did. Wouldn't it be great if we all had that mentality? Instead of being, trying to be famous and travel and preach all over and write books, how about we just brag on Jesus like Paul did? It's amazing, right? And he, it's, it's just amazing to me. He says, um, he goes on there, he says, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I have been crucified to it. The cross is not only the power of God, but it's the means that we overcome the world. There ain't a person in here that doesn't struggle with sin, right? And when we get into that place and we're struggling, if we focus and boast on the cross, it will help, you know? In, in Philippians chapter 3, last one, here's Paul again. And, and it, it's amazing to me how much he puts value in what happened at the cross. He, he, he says this in verse 10. He says, that I may know him the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to 
his death. Not mine, not my deal. Three super important things that Paul values more than anything. To know him, these would be good. If I was taking notes today, I would write these down and conform my life into this. Right? To know him. If you don't know him today, we'll fix that in a minute, right? The power, listen, we just read that it's the power of God is in the resurrection. Paul says it again, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, right? Good thing I love about reading the Apostle Paul. He was never satisfied with nominal Christianity. He wasn't the guy who comes to church on Sunday and then goes back to his life. He was invested all the way, all the way, no question whatsoever. He wanted the works of God working in his life. He wanted the power of that resurrection working in his life. And if you read his letters to the churches, including Corinth, which was Vegas on steroids, basically, he changed everything by the power of the resurrection. The more you understand the power of the resurrection the more you're going to understand the fellowship of his sufferings. And that's not like, oh, I want to suffer like Jesus, because Paul prayed specifically with a thorn in the flesh, which I think was his dealings with people, that he would be set free from it. And if he wanted to participate, it's like, oh, great, they're going to stone me. I'm going to be ready for uh, the fellowship of his sufferings. He prayed that he would be released from that three times. And God always said, my grace is sufficient. So let's look at what happened leading up to the cross, right? If we read the Gospel of John from chapter 13 to chapter 17, it's very detailed about how Jesus handled his disciples. I don't, he had told them three separate times in the Gospels that he was going to Jerusalem to die, and yet he had to berate them for their unbelief after he was resurrected because they were like, oh, you died in Jerusalem. He's like, really? I told you. I told you three times. So he goes through this whole thing. The promise of the Holy Spirit is delivered. There will be another just like me who's coming after I go. And that person is one, that word alos in the Greek is one of the same type. So even though Jesus was leaving, the Holy Spirit was coming, that promise was made. Um, We see that uh, there is a a sin that takes place in Genesis 3, all the way back in Genesis 3. Then there's in Genesis 3.15, there's a prophecy that there's a Redeemer coming. Genesis 3 says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, you meaning the serpent and the woman, the woman meaning the um, church. And between your seed and her seed, spiritual battle started in the garden in chapter 3. You shall bruise his head. He shall, Jesus shall bruise your head. It's funny, with snakes, venomous snakes, their venom's in their head. Simple bruise to the head of a snake will kill it. Interesting the words they used. He shall bruise your head and you uh, shall bruise his head heel right after he stomps on thus head, right? So we can see this started, it's the first prophecy of the Redeemer, and if you really, Chase can clean this up, but in Revelation 12, there's a huge fight between the woman and the dragon, and this big thing, and there's a baby, and all this stuff, and in Revelation 12, Chase will probably talk about that in a couple of Wednesdays, 
and, and you could see from this point on, there's separation between man, sinful man now, because of what happened in the garden, and a righteous, pure, sinless God. There's a great gulf fix in there, and there's no way of fixing it. And through the whole Old Testament, they, they did animal sacrifices that was just covering, it was atonement, it was covering their sin. They would pronounce the sin on a goat, two goats. One would sacrifice and sprinkle their blood. The other one they would pronounce their sins on and it was led into the desert to die. Right? So they had this whole ritual thing coming that because that always takes blood to satisfy a broken covenant. And we see that in Hebrews 9, verse 22. It says this, And according to the law, old covenant, and the... And the um, Almost all things are purified by blood. Israel was trying to be purified, but they couldn't be pure because it was an atonement, right? With blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. We cannot be made righteous. We cannot be made perfect without the shedding of blood. And we can't go before a righteous God, a perfect God, without a sacrifice being made. Blood has to be spilled because the covenant is broken, right? So we can see why did Jesus have to do this? Why did Jesus had to be the sacrifice for sin? The animals that they were using for the blood sacrifices were perfect. The law states a long list of perfectionist things that these animals, the goats had to be perfect in color. They couldn't have an eye poked out. They couldn't be dirty. They couldn't have a broken leg of lamb. None of that stuff. They had to be absolutely perfect. And they would bring them to the temple and they would sacrifice them and they would use their blood. Jesus was perfect, sinless, spotless son of God. His whole ministry, the whole time he was here, never sinned. That's the only way he could say to like the woman with the um, issue of blood, the woman caught in adultery, the sinless, the sin-filled woman. That's the only reason he could say, go and sin no more, right? So Jesus taught the disciples, right? They, they, they have the Passover meal in the upper room. They sing a hymn, a halal in, in uh, Jewish culture, it's usually Psalms 113 through 118 at the end of the Passover meal. They would sing this hymn of thanksgiving and praise to God. Most scholars believe they sang that on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. They were singing these, these psalms. It was tradition. That's what they did, right? So um, it was uh, a thanksgiving, and they headed to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, the Garden of Gethsemane was... Um, uh, basically an olive orchard that was fenced in. It was on the slope of the Mount of Olives just outside of Jerusalem. They crossed the Kidron Valley and they went to the garden. Jesus frequented this garden a lot for his secret place time. He would go there and pray. Gethsemane means, the word means, oil press. Um, it was, again, enclosed olive orchard and it included a press for pressing the olives and making olive oil. Um, that's what they used it for. But Jesus found peace and solitude there. Now, all four Gospels talk about the Garden of Gethsemane. It was extremely important what took place there. 
because, and we'll see in a minute, in Matthew 26, that's what we're going to read today, uh, Mark 14, Luke 22, and John 18 all describe almost word for word the exact same thing. Now, they were, on Wednesday nights when we're learning how to read the Bible, we see because they're seeing through different eyes, different educations, that there is different words used there. So, Matthew 26, let's read the story. Again, Jesus came with, to a place called Gethsemane. They had finished the whole upper room thing. They had the Passover meal. They sang the hymn leading over there. Now they're in the garden. Uh, and he said to the disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. So he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. That's James and John, right? The sons of thunder. These were the inner three, the inner circle to who Jesus was really um, these were his guys. These were his gangsters, right? They were his guys. Um, then listen to this. He said, he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. And listen, he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. It's interesting. Sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, listen, these are Jesus' words. They're in red. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death, stay here. Watch with me. Sorrowful unto death. All the gospels I have read them multiple times, front to back, in 20 plus five years of being saved, I have never heard Jesus use those words. Even when Lazarus died, the Bible says Jesus wept. But he wasn't sorrowful unto death. He wasn't deeply disturbed. This, this scripture right here where he says deeply distressed and sorrowful is the hinge pin to everything that happened in the garden. Something is happening that is outside of the normality for what Jesus is doing. Right? Verse 20, uh, 39, he says, he went a little further, fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, Father, oh, my Father, is it possible? Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. That's a good way to pray. As you will, Father. The cup he's referencing, cup of judgment. We'll talk about more of that in a minute. Verse 40, then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And said to Peter, what? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. You deal with temptation? Good thing? Let's pray. Get on your face. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, a second time, he went away and prayed saying, oh, my father, if this cup, the cup of judgment cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. That phrase right there will test your, your faith and your Christianity to a whole nother level. Because I can guarantee you in many years of being saved, your will and his will probably don't match. And that's going to be like skin being torn off you when it's like, okay, I get it. We were just talking about this last night, how uh, the, our trip to Vegas, I can't believe I'm going to say this. Our trip to Vegas, I knew I had a check in my heart that we were not supposed to drive my truck and pull a trailer to Vegas. 
So what I do? Picked up the trailer and drove my truck to California. Loaded the trailer full of stuff, drove back, to, got as far as Vegas, and the thing freaking blew up. And God told me, don't drive your truck. My will being done. And now it's still in Vegas being repaired with a brand new engine. Blew it up. 2017 Ford. It was found on road dead, literally. <laughs> literally. His will being done, not mine. And I was so mad about it because I know better. I know better when God speaks to me to listen. Instead of doing it my way, I wanted to have my cool truck in California. Yeah, it was genius, dummy. Where are we? 43, verse 43, and then he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away again and prayed for the third time, saying the same words. This is Jesus praying these things. If there's another way, he is terrified about something coming. And I can guarantee you it is not physical death. Because they tried to kill him since he was an infant. It couldn't have been that. He was used to it. Right? It was like a nickname. Yeah, we're going to kill you today. I know, whatever. They tried to stone him. They tried to throw him off a cliff. They tried to do all these things. He was not afraid to die. And then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. He knows what's happening. Rise up and let's be going, for my betrayer is at hand. Understand this. Sorrowful and very heavy is not a normal thing. Something besides his normal ministry is taking place in the garden. And it's the most important thing that changed everything for him. This is a big deal. It's not just, oh, he prayed a few times, if your will, God, if your will in the cup. And there is more important things happening in the garden than has happened in the 33 years prior because of this whole sorrowful and very heavy. In Mark 14, 33, and he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Right? Now, in Luke's gospel, Luke 22, he says some different things. And I think, because Luke was a doctor, a little more detailed. Right? Let's start in verse 40-ish. Uh, 40. He came into the place... And he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Again, you deal with temptation, get you a prayer book and a journal. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, Father, if it's your will, take this cup, again, the same word cup, same Greek word cup, away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then listen to what happened. Again, deeply distressed. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. This is not a normal, ah, man, I'm upset I got to leave you guys. I mean, we were just getting to know each other. You know, we're not going to be able to do lunch anymore at Legends. You know, it's, it's a bummer. That wasn't it. This is deeper than that. I have never seen in all of Jesus' ministry 
Even when Lazarus died or when they were trying to kill him or whatever, where an angel had to come and strengthen him. I mean, that, that's great. That's wonderful. But why is he so upset? This is not just mad at the situation or going to die. Something else is happening. And verse 44, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became great drops of blood falling down to the ground. This is a real thing. Great, this happens to people who are deathbed sick, who are dealing with anxiety, multiple diseases, and one other thing about this whole thing, nobody has ever survived bloody sweat. Your body is under so much stress, so much pressure, that the blood is literally forced through the veins, into the glands, and out of the skin. And nobody has ever survived except him. It was just deep anguish and agony taking place when, for people who that, that's, this has happened to. Verse 45, when he rose up from prayer and he'd come to his disciples, he found them. Now listen to this. Luke's account says, sleeping from sorrow. They are watching. If you've seen the passion and you've seen the, the flogging scene and it makes you mad, I believe that's kind of what these guys were going through. But they were seeing such anguish, such agony, such distress of their Savior, of their Messiah, that they just passed out. And I used to give these guys a hard time. How can they not stay asleep? It's Jesus. Ask them. How can they be that disobedient? And I don't believe they had a choice. I think it was just, you know, the way people see like a car accident and they just pass out or they see a dog get hit or a deer get hit and they just pass out because it's just, ah, it's too much anxiety. I believe that's what these guys were going through. They were watching their Savior go through something and they couldn't understand it. And I believe they just fell out. They just passed out. And Jesus had to come and, and kick them like a teenager and say, get out. Can't you pray? I need you to pray. Much like last week, put yourself in that situation. Watching Jesus go through these things. Greek word agony there. Struggling with pain and suffering. He's in great agony. Anguish is the reflection on evil that is already past. While agony is struggling with evil at the time, Jesus is dealing with something so evil full of agony and sorrowful. And he wasn't afraid to die. He wasn't afraid of the stoning. John 10, 18 says this. Jesus speaking, he says, no one, he's talking about his life here. He says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down myself. This is interesting in the, the context that he's talking about. He says, I have the power to lay it down. He's talking about his physical life, right? The, the manly um, humanity of the Savior. He's like, I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. Then he says this statement. This command I have received from my Father. His Father in heaven, our God, has given Jesus the power to say to, to lay his life down for humanity or to not. He has a choice in this deal. He has a choice to either go through with this in the garden that's already starting 
Or he could say, nah, I just can't do it, and back out. He has the ability to do either one, right? He has the authority to take his life, to lay his life down, and to pick it up again. Let's talk about this word sorrowful for a second. The Greek word means dissolve. Did you ever, like an Alka-Seltzer dissolves? His soul was dissolving inside of him. Extreme sorrow that dissolves the vigor and threatens to separate soul, your mind, your will, and your emotions from your body. That's deep. Think about that. Just think about that for a second. All of us have had trauma in our life to the point of probably just ridiculousness. But this is crazy. Deeply distressed means overwhelmed with agony, the most extreme anguish a soul can feel, excruciating anxiety and torture of spirit. This is what he's going through in the garden and sweating great drops of blood. Other translations of Matthew 26, 38, the Knox translation says, he is ready to die with sorrow. The message says, this sorrow is crushing my life out. Crushing my life out. The Amplified Bible says, I am almost dying of sorrow. The Living Bible, I like this one, it says, my soul is crushed with horror and sadness to the point of death. Stay here. Stay awake with me. I'm telling you, this is happening in the garden is past physical death, past just leaving, past a stoning or a beating or even being flogged. It's something worse, far worse than any of us can imagine. And it's simply this. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this. Listen carefully and let this hit your heart today. For he, Jesus, for he made him, or God made him who knew no sin, the perfect spotless sacrifice, made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God, that we might become the righteousness of God. That phrase right there means it's on you to decide. Are you going to be righteous or not? It's your decision. It's your decision. Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, after he has trained up his 12, took the three, went, sang the Passover song, and walked to the garden, is beginning to take on the sin of the world in the garden. He hasn't even been arrested yet, and hell is coming for him. This is a big deal because without Jesus becoming sin for us, we cannot be righteous. And if we cannot be righteous, we cannot stand in the presence of our Father. Do you understand what this means? He had to, to, to take on the sin of the world. And I'm not just talking about you know, the 12 guys and you know, the other followers that he had. Oh, I'll take on their sin. From Adam to today. And if there's a trumpet in the sky this morning and we all get pulled out of this place, hallelujah. But from this point forward, the sin of the entire planet is coming upon him. And when he dies on the cross, we're going to look 
uh, uh, see how much that sin just punishes him for three days. Like waves hitting a beach. Bam, bam, nonstop, never going to end. Keeps coming, keeps coming because of us and our sin. Because we cannot get to a God in heaven unless we're righteous. Have to be righteous. You have to be purified. We have to be clean to get to a spotless, perfect God. The Old Testament, it was animals. This side of the cross, Jesus took my sin. Everything that I messed up, everything that I did wrong, he took it. And it's beginning in the garden, right? How could the, the, the purest son of God become sin? I don't know how this takes place. I don't know, have a clue to begin to understand how I was made righteous. I could tell you when it happened, how it happened in, in a closet, and you know, I said a prayer, I believe in my heart, confessed with my mouth, blah, blah, blah. I was righteous at that point. I was prepared to go see a perfect God at that point. I don't know what happened. I don't know how the spirit was reborn, how it became new. I just go off of what Paul says in the Bible and what Jesus did. But Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is probably, out of the whole cross trip, the most important part of, the whole, of all of Christianity. And let me tell you why. Because of that verse in John 10, he could have said, nope, not doing this. This is too much for me to bear. So he prayed three times. If there is another way, Father, do the other way because I don't want to do this. Why didn't he want to do this? He wasn't afraid to die. He wasn't afraid of stoning or beating or even dying, right? Why did he have to go through this? The biggest threat, the anguish, the distress of spirit that he was going through is because of eternal separation from his father. Never in his whole time had he been separated from his father. Think about hell for a minute. Think about everybody you know who's a non-believer who hasn't been made righteous. Think about hell. What is hell? Hell is eternal separation from God. And because Jesus could have backed out at any minute, he could have said no at any minute, we have the choice. It's the choice in Hebrew says it is made here for us to become righteous. He willingly and knowingly offered that perfect sacrifice so we can be made righteous. His body was recoiling from what was going to happen. His physical body was freaking out. His body was pushing blood out of his sweat glands because of the eternal separation from God. That, my friends, is a picture of hell. I don't remember who said it, but uh, it was a, I think it was Penn or Teller, one of the two. He said, how can you know a message like this and not tell people what's coming? That's the, the meanest thing you could do to anybody is not share what hell is like. Eternal damnation. Jesus is recoiling from what's coming. And yet he went through with it all the way to the beginning. He wanted his friends to pray with him. 
And I believe they were seeing what was happening and they were just flat passing out. This, out of the whole, out of all the gospels, all the miracles, all the raising of the dead, all of the miracles and signs that took place, I believe this was the hardest thing for him to do. And he pushed through and, and came out of the garden triumphant in victory because he could have said no. From this point forward, he is full on committed. There's no getting out of it now. Uh, one thing that, that I love about John's gospel, when the soldiers came to get him, he said, uh, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. And Jesus said, I am. He said, I am he. Same words that God said to Moses at the burning bush. All of the soldiers in the company fell backwards from the power of the I am words. Jesus came out of that garden triumphant because of the power of God that we have. We have that with us, right? They fell asleep for sorrow, the disciples, the 12. They saw his distress. They passed out. Let's everybody stand together. Now, I want you to bow your heads and, and close your eyes because I want to read this scripture from Hebrews chapter 12. And, and I just want you to, to let it hit your heart. Let it sink in today. Sink in this morning and just think about what Jesus went through in the garden, that eternal separation from his papa, from his abba, his daddy, his father. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says this, therefore, close your eyes, therefore, we also, this is just so encouraging, it really makes me stronger. He says, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside, put aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Remember what Paul said? He said, we, can, we have the victory because of the resurrection. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking unto Jesus. Looking unto Jesus, not looking unto our therapist or looking unto Oprah or looking unto the news looking unto Jesus because he is the author and the finisher of our faith. This is the kicker right here. He says, who for the joy that was set before him, the joy that was set before him, you know what that joy was? It was you. It was me. It was us. All of us. The joy that was set before him endured the cross. He went through eternal separation from his father, so we don't have to. You don't have to. You can if you want, but why would you? Despising shame has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners. We'll find more about that next week. Against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. He's telling us, when you're weary and discouraged, look to the cross. Look to what Jesus did, what he went through starting in the garden. And then verse 4, which is a miracle to me. 
He says, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed. You haven't even tried striving against sin. He's like, don't let your souls get weary and strive to come against sin. Release it. Push it away. Lay aside every weight in the sin which so easily ensnares you because you can resist unto death. You can win this fight. He did it for us. Jesus left blood in the garden. Jesus left blood in, in Herod's temple. Jesus left blood at the cross. Jesus left blood in heaven. All for you and me. He did it for us. And we can enter into the fellowship of his sufferings by just saying yes today. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Nobody's looking around, just me. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. If you live in the Sandy, South Jordan, West Jordan, or Harriman area, we would love for you to engage with us at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions, service times, and information about our fabulous children's and student environments, head over to bridgechurchutah.com or email info at bridgechurchutah.com or you can simply text 801-391-6969. We're looking forward to seeing you soon.